1: Greetings and welcome to the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. I'm your host James Stansel, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Steve Shankin, the author of *The Port Chicago Fifty: Disaster, Mutiny, and the Fight for Civil Rights*. I think you're going to enjoy this interview because this is a part of history that you don't really hear that much about, and Steve does a really good job in presenting it to the audience. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host James Stansel. And I have the great pleasure today on the New Books in African-American Studies channel to be talking with the author of The Port Chicago 50, Disaster, Mutiny, and the Fight for Civil Rights. Live from New York, Saratoga, New York, right? Yeah, that's right. Steve Shankin. How are you doing today, yes. Steve?
0: Good, James. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about this story.
1: It's no problem. Saratoga Springs, New York. And your book is published by Roaring Brook Press. Correct. Roaring Brook. And you know, yeah, I, that's an imprint of Macmillan. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, an imprint of Macmillan. And I saw your book uh, probably maybe about a year ago, Steve, and it really piqued my interest because there are a lot of people who don't know about what happened with the Port Chicago 50. And your book is generally... Um, geared towards younger audiences. But as you mentioned to me offline, this book and and, and um, your award winning book bomb and, you know, so many other books in you know, in a similar vein are also read by adults because people may not have access to these types of materials or books like this.
0: Yeah, that's happening more and more in, in fiction as well. I mean, mm-hmm. how many adults do you know who read <laughs> Harry Potter? Just to right. give the most obvious example. That's the, Hunger Games. I think some of the best writings being done, yeah, in, in young adult And and so I like to think that goes for nonfiction too. And, and and in some cases, you're right. It's it's not just that this is a shorter version of a story that's out there. Right. It, there's just there's much written about Absolutely. this poor
1: Chicago story. Absolutely, right. And, you know, I, I can tell you, um, you know, and talking with Steven and, and doing research, and you know, and, and becoming more and more familiar with his book. That yes, his his book definitely, as a young adult nonfiction book, uh, is definitely of the quality that adults should read it and be involved with it as as well. So mm. you, I can I can definitely uh, vouch for and endorse you there, Steve. This is an excellent. Well, thank book. you. That's nice. And so, before we get into you know some of the details about the book. Steve, if you don't mind, can you maybe share with our audience um, some information about your background and your motivation or interest in this subject?
0: Well, I'll, I'll start a little bit farther back <laughs> in time, as I do when I, I visit schools a lot. And I'll always start with a picture of my brother, me and my brother, when we were about 12 and 10, respectively. I'm two years older. Mm-hmm. And we decided we were going to be filmmakers together. Ah. And we had great hair, too, which is the real reason <laughs> I giant hair. But, uh, no, we wanted to make... F- when we weren't fighting, we were planning to be famous brother filmmakers together, and that went on for our whole adolescence. We used to That's make little comic sketches that we would videotape, and then after college, we we lived together in um, in Austin. We moved to Austin and oh, okay. and said we're going to make movies. That's it. We're making movies. Uh, we've talked about it long enough, and so we you know we had all the usual crummy part time jobs and and living in in in. Tiny apartments, but we were just saving up to make movies, and we put it all into one feature film that we made. This is going back. I'm talking 1995. Mm -hmm. And it came out and totally bombed. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, I look back on it and I could see, I've watched it since, cringing the whole time. (laughs) And there was a funny idea. There was a funny idea there. It's called A More Perfect Union, which you'll recognize from the Mm -hmm. Constitution. And it was a political comedy that I thought lent itself. To a low budget, and it was a very low budget. You could always go to YouTube, like anything, like like anything today, and see uh, a trailer of it and see what you think.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: it never made any money, as most low-budget movies sure. do not. Um, and, and so, I still really wanted to be a writer, and I ended up in New York City working for a textbook company. And that's relevant because I had never really thought about writing history. Mm-hmm. I was interested. I never thought about writing it. I was writing comedy and, and comics, and. And this was kind of eye-opening. I started working for these, these boring books that we all remember from school. And I thought, well, I'll, very naively, I'll just make them better. I'll put in some stories <laughs> and make it a little more fun to read. I mean, history is not boring. It's just dramatic stories from right. different times and places. How, should, how is that boring? And yet talk to the kids, and, and a lot of them will, will, will be wary. So that didn't, that didn't work. I mean, I tried for years. That could be a whole other interview, you know, why that didn't <laughs> Work and what right. my textbooks are the way they are. But I started collecting stories that I thought would actually appeal to teenagers and, and middle schoolers. And, and so I started my own career. I'm making it sound easy. It took 10 years to make that <laughs> But eventually I just started writing books that I thought kids would actually want to read, but that still told them these stories that we think they need to know to be educated citizens. Mm-hmm. And that included all, all kinds of things. But the, I'll bring it around to the Port Chicago story because I was researching a book called Bomb and that was about mm-hmm. it was my attempt to, to, to write a spy thriller. I love spy thrillers as a reader and I thought, I want to do that. Can't, maybe I can do that as a young adult non-fiction mm-hmm. book. And the perfect subject was, was World War II, the Manhattan Project, and the spies that managed to steal the secrets out of the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. And so that became the subject of that book. So... I was researching that, and here's where my, my wife's brother, Eric, comes into the story. He <laughs> loves crazy conspiracy theories, and he loves to spout them. It's entertaining. I like it, too. And cool. it drives his dad crazy, which I also like because it's just funny. <laughs> so, uh, so we were at you know family gathering, and he said, oh, you're studying the Manhattan Project. You know when the, the first atomic bomb was tested, don't you? And I just felt right for the job. I said, "Yeah, of course." I, you know, they tested it in New Mexico in the 1945 in the desert. And he said, "No, that's what they want you to think. It was really at this place called Port Chicago, yeah. California, in the summer of 1944, a year before anyone, uh, any of us suckers, thought that the bomb was even mm. ready." And you know, he went on to tell me the website he had found this on, and and there there is a very small, I won't call them a community, but there, there are some people out there who, you, you can even, this is even on Wikipedia, if you look at the Port Chicago story, there'll be mm-hmm. a, little, a little passage about nuclear bomb theory. But I didn't even know about anything to do with Port Chicago. Sure. It turns out it's in the Bay Area of California. I was starting from, from that, not even knowing where it was. And, and I realized, quickly reading it, okay, there was this huge explosion at this naval base in the summer of 1944. Some people... think it was a nuclear bomb that was tested. This is really a kind of a fringe Mm -hmm. conspiracy theory. That's not what what happened. But as I started to read the history, which I never would have done if he hadn't made this offhand Mm -hmm. remark, I said, this is really a civil rights story Mm -hmm. and a very, very little known one. And we'll get into more of the details of what happened. But Mm -hmm. I just... This is not a a story as someone who had spent the last 15 years researching American history for these textbooks. It's just not something I ever come across.
1: And you and you're right. I mean, I I went through American history and we talked about this a little earlier offline. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I found the book in a a lot in a a book liquidation place that had, you know, a passage uh, Mm -hmm. about Port Chicago that I actually learned or, or knew anything about it. So it's certainly something um, that I think young people should should know about. And it's, you know, there's some controversies to it. Um, you know, like you said, there's some civil rights, you know, uh, aspects to it. And it's, and it's something that, you know, relates to, you know, other tragedies and incidents and even things that go on in today's world. Absolutely, I think.
0: Definitely, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so... Um, that's an interesting story how you <laughs> actually got into this Port Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thing here. I mean, and like I said, it's really, you know, a, you know, a great book. And I'm hoping that adults as well as young people, and that's, that's something that really, they could share. I mean, they could share, you know, this reading and, you know, and, and this story. Um, but yes. But before we get into, like, you know, again, more of the details of it, can you maybe talk with us about how you conducted your research uh, to, to, to write this book and how long a process did it take for you?
0: It was a unique
1: research process.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the process for my books usually takes a year or more. Mm-hmm. But this was different because, yeah, of course, there's endless sources on World War II, but mm-hmm. this story specifically, not so much. And it was pretty, pretty, didn't take long to run out of things to read, mm-hmm. on specifically on this instant, this explosion at Port Chicago, mm-hmm. which if you talk to, you know, there's still some people around from World War II, and if you talk to them, they'll remember it vaguely. Mm-hmm. Uh, big, oh yeah, something happened, but they remember the explosion, because it was a huge accident that killed over 300 young mm-hmm. men, and so of course it was news for a little while, but this is the summer of 44, D-Day, everything mm-hmm. is going on, so it wasn't a big story, again you know it just kind of drifted out of the out of the papers mm-hmm. so there wasn't much to find but the one thing and and this is very important that that anyone will find when they search is a book by robert allen mm-hmm. called the port chicago mutiny mm-hmm. and i have to tell robert's story he's really he, he is the hero not of the story but of keeping the story alive okay because his story is amazing he was a grad student at Berkeley in the mm-hmm. 70s. When he came, he had the same experience you and I had. He came across the story in a, in a random way. It was an NAACP pa- pamphlet that he mm-hmm. found about this. And he said, what is this? I'm Here I am studying, becoming a, a PhD in, in, in African American studies and, and I don't even know what this is, what this story is. And it's not in any of my textbooks. And so he started researching and there was really nothing. You know, this is way before the internet. Sure. I love telling kids, that, you know, you know, people used to research <laughs> or the internet, and uh, he so he had to do real old-school gumshoe detective work and he quickly realized that there had been a trial that these that, that in brief that what happened was there was this huge explosion and we're going to get into the racism and segregation mm-hmm. at the base but after this explosion many of the men refused to go back to work under these same conditions and were charged with mutiny and they and they were tried for mutiny so Robert was able to find using the Freedom of Information Act because it's not out there anywhere in a published form he got the transcripts of the trial mm-hmm. and he said I'm gonna I'm gonna track these guys down I mean many of them most of them will still be yeah. around It's the 1970s and uh, but all he had were the names and even the when you get the transcript and I got it too even the places that they're from is redacted it's sort of wow. locked up, and so you can't see it and he contacted the Navy and said I want to I want to talk to these men. How can I get in touch with them? And they said, You don't give out that information. So imagine that. I mean, no internet. All you have are names, common names in many cases. Mm-hmm. You don't know even what city to start with. He was looking in phone books and making calls. It was ridiculous. There's no way he could wow. find them. But he was so determined that what he did was he just kept contacting the Navy. And then in one day, a clerk there, someone in the office in Washington, I think kind of went off script, maybe felt Sympathetic to what what Robert was doing, but mm-hmm. he said, okay, "Here's what I'll do for you, and I'm probably not supposed to do it. Just write letters to anyone you want to contact. Write letters to them. Tell me their names, and write the letter. I will forward that those ah. letters to the that I have. If they want to get back in touch with you, that's up to them. And that was the turning point. And then he started getting letters. He ended up getting dozens of them, and then buying a bus pass." Mm-hmm. $100, which was every penny he had yep. in the world, for, on a Greyhound bus, you know, one of those, see America passes, unlimited, and he's, in, <laughs> and he's got it, all these guys are in New York City, they're in the South, so I was like, all right, 100 bucks. I guess I'll just live on the bus, and he did for months, and he went wow. around the country, he old school tape recorder, and, and just interviewed them, and did oral histories, which translated to thousands of pages of oral histories, mm-hmm. with these young men, who, whose story had never been told, Mm-hmm. They certainly did not get a chance to tell their story in the transcripts of the trial. Cool. And so if he hadn't done this, this story would be gone. I mean, mm-hmm. th- from the point of view of the men who matter, the ones who were well, there.
1: Who were directly involved.
0: We have the official version, but it's very, it's very incomplete. So he did this, and he very, very generously shared those notes with me. Awesome. He, he recently retired from a, just a beloved professor of african-american studies at berkeley for decades and and recently retired but he has all this stuff and he was very generous about introducing me to the few survivors who are out Mm -hmm. there families who are out there still working on the story still working passionately to exonerate these men who Mm. were convicted of mutiny and lived their entire lives as mutineers a tremendous handicap in, in life and um we consider them heroes, and we've tried, and 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 now I say we because I've joined this community well, mm-hmm. trying to get the government, and it would have to be the Navy, mm-hmm. to reconsider those convictions. So I just wanted to get in the the story of Robert and how mm-hmm. he kept this alive, and how those notes became. When you see the book, you'll you'll realize that they're, they're the heart of the book that I mm-hmm. wouldn't have done without them because I wanted to. Tell the story from the point of view of these young men, and, and I mean young, because you could join the Navy at 17, mm-hmm. the parents' signature, which a lot of these guys did. They were patriots. They they wanted to fight for their country. They they had no illusions about being considered second-class citizens by their government. Mm-hmm. But they still wanted to fight for their country, and and... and so they were really young, which I think is relevant to this story because, because of the life or death decisions they had to make as teenagers.
1: Wow, it's yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that story of uh, Mr. Allen there, because yeah, yeah we've, without him, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't have been able to write your book, and none of none of us would really know about this story. It would have been lost to the dustbins of history, as as they is say. This true?
0: Is, that is true. Right.
1: So let's get into a little about. You've already kind of, you know, kind of piqued our interest a little bit and given us some, some, some tidbits about the story. So can you, maybe can you summarize some of the key points or things that you know, if if folk pick up your book, that um they'll be able to read about.
0: Yeah, let's go back a little bit, okay, and and set it up because when World World War Two started, the the navy was completely seg- actually the navy was beyond completely segregated. Mm-hmm. Really the only African Americans serving in the Navy were messmen, really servants, essentially on board ships. And I started not—he's not a character in the story, but but Dory Miller, who was who yes, was a famous, friend. became a famous sailor because of his heroism at, at Pearl Harbor, was a messman. But when, when when the attack began, he jumped on a gun and started shooting and and became a hero and mm-hmm. was given awards and accolades. But he was still a messman. That was the only job open to African-American sailors and and as a compromise I want to put that in, in air quotes compromise <laughs> um, at the start of the war Roosevelt President Roosevelt said alright well we're going to allow black sailors to be actual sailors not just messmen." but and that was the concession to civil rights leaders who were pressuring the government but the concession to southerners in Congress well not just southerners to people who supported the status quo mm-hmm. was but they're not going to be able to serve on ships. We're not mm-hmm. going to integrate ships because people will just never get along. It was, they tried, just to fast forward a couple of years, mm-hmm. they, they started integrate just out of necessity during the, at the latter parts of the war, and it worked very well, much more smoothly than they anticipated it would. But at the time, that was the sort of conventional wisdom, if you, if you can use that word. But, mm-hmm. So that's, that's how these guys ended up at Port Chicago. They either enlisted or were drafted out of high school, most of them. Uh, some were in the early stages of college, some were working, and they really came from a really diverse mm-hmm. background all over the country, different all cities, of rural, all walks of life, different levels of education. But they were taken to training. They were given them pretty standard training, which made them think, hey, we're going to serve on ships, which is mm-hmm. sort of what we're here for. And then they were sent to Port Chicago, which is this really, even now, kind of desolate-looking place. It's in the Bay Area. You think of a sort of glamorous part of their country, but it's not. It's, it's inland a bit, on the river, um, but attached you know, to this waterway that leads out to the bay and, and the ocean. And so they decided it was a good place, partly because it was remote, mm-hmm. to load ammunition. Because who you knows something could go wrong when you're loading ammunition. Hmm. So let's not do it in the city. Let's do it out here. And, and that's all they did. This was a loading ammunition onto ships out to the Pacific to fight. Against Japan, and that's that's all they were doing there. So these guys show up as seventeen, eighteen, you know, right out of basic training. No, this is the the big point: no experience or training in handling bombs mm-hmm. or explosives, which in civilian life you need years. Of course. of course, you would need years of training to work on a dock handling explosives. And these guys pointed that out. And all the officers were white, but all the sailors were black. And and officers were, uh, and these were not the frankly the best and brightest either who got sent to this place the officers i'm talking about ah, right these guys were didn't have they didn't have experience either and this was not the kind of post anybody wanted uh, and they just said "Ah, do your best you know basically i really pressured the guys to not just do their best but to work quickly because they the officers officers would be judged by how quickly each division loaded and they pitted the divisions right. against each other mm-hmm. and even placed bets which they later denied but as well documented that they placed bets amongst themselves. My division can load so many tons. Mm -hmm. And so these guys found themselves loading bombs, which they were willing to do. They understood it was wartime and everyone had dangerous jobs, Mm -hmm. but they wanted training. And they also knew, of course, that they were being treated as less than, you know, that they were given this job partly, largely because they were black and because this was deemed what they could do and should do mm. for the effort. And so there's this tension that builds up in the early part of the story partly because of feeling discriminated against right. but also partly just because it was so dangerous. There's just that unbearable tension of knowing that something was going to go wrong. They're handling these bombs every day there would be mishaps, you know, a bomb would fall through a net and hit the hit the deck of a ship or hit the side of a boat as they're as they're loading. Right. And the officers would always say, ah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Keep going. Go faster. Oh. And, and so the way I, I wanted to tell the story was to introduce all of that, but also to introduce sort of five or six main characters. The Really, the, the guy who becomes the main character, he just screams out to be the main, the main figure in this story is Joe Small, who is the young guy from New Jersey. Oh, right. And he was just a natural leader. He was the guy who should have been in officer training you know, but he did, that just was not available. Mm.
1: Under different circumstances.
0: Under, under fair and better circumstances. Because he was essentially their But like Everyone in his division said, Joe, what should we do? Joe, talk mm. to the office, Tell them this
1: isn't fair. A natural leader.
0: A natural, and he had to keep sticking his neck out. And he becomes a main character as, as things progress because of that. And also was looked at by the Navy as the ringleader of what was to happen. Mm-hmm. So we meet the guys. We see the situation that they're in. And then, sure enough, in the summer of 1944, one night, there's this disaster. No one who was working on the deck, the port that night, survived. That's how big the explosion was. It was a ship full of over 5,000 tons of ammunition, which is not quite, but in the ballpark of the explosive power of those first atomic bombs that were Mm -hmm. tested in New Mexico and then the ones that were used in Japan. And so the, the, the men that I follow, that Robert tracked down 30 years later, mm-hmm. including Joe Small, had just gone to bed. Their barracks was a mile from the waterfront, but the blast was so strong that it actually knocked over their building a mile away. Wow. None of them were killed, but they they, they were had injuries from from flying glass and the, and the falling walls and, and ceilings. But they made it out. They spent days. This is part of the story is, is pretty gruesome, but... But just looking for survivors, mostly finding bodies and 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 not complete bodies.
1: Rare parts of
0: them. Parts putting out fires. um, They quickly quickly became obvious. No one had survived. Uh, Nobody really told them what was going on. They were just put to this this horrible work. And then a few days later, taken to another base, Mare Island, right in the in the in the same Bay Area, another loading base, another base where all they did was load ammunition. And nobody had talked to them. Nobody told them anything about what was going on. And this is where where Joe Small comes, comes into the story again because people, they they really knew that probably the next day they were going to be marched down to the pier and told to start loading ammunition again in the same mm-hmm. rushed way under the same incompetent and in many cases racist officers. And they said, what do we do? Do we have a right to, to, to stand up against this? And we're in the military. Technically, we don't have the right to do it. But... If they tell us to load ammunition, what should we do? And, and this was naturally what they talked about over those days. Of course. And now we would see that they, of course, are traumatized by everything that had happened, but nobody took that into account at the time. And, and they turned to Joe and they said, what, what, what are you going to do? And he was very careful about, about saying, I, I'm not telling anybody what to do, but I'm not going. If they order me to go back to loading, I'm not going. You guys make up your own mind." And there's a very dramatic moment. I, and I think a really key moment in the civil rights movement. I mean, just, just as big as Jackie Robinson and Rosa Parks and those key moments that, that we do know about and think about. Mm-hmm. This one is not on that list. But maybe one day it will be. They, as they were being marched down to the pier, Joe's division was ordered to turn toward the, the loading dock. And they just stopped. Mm-hmm. And it felt very organic because they hadn't planned it. Maybe some in their own minds had planned it. Joe had, and he stopped, and everyone stopped. And this happened to other divisions as well. And and very quickly, the officers saw what was happening, and they got everyone together on a, it was a baseball field. And an admiral drove up. He'd gotten the word and drove up furious, jumping out of the Jeep and yelling at the guys and, and got right to the point. He said, you guys are... Order to load ammunition. If you don't follow those orders right now, I'm gonna see that you're all charged with mutiny and executed by firing squad. And I'm gonna give you a few Whoa. seconds to decide what to do. Get on this side if you're going back to work. If you're a mutineer, get on that side. And these guys were thinking mutiny, I mean, that's when isn't that when you take over a ship? Isn't that something from the you know, the seventeen hundreds in Britain or something? <laughs> it was a mutiny. Nobody's committing a mutiny here. We're just saying we want, some, we want maybe to change these conditions, make them mm-hmm. – meaning. want training. That was their biggest thing. We want, we want training. So they had a few seconds, and that's, again, where the age, I think, comes into it. If you know kids, you know, you taught. I mean, you, you, these are not grown-ups.
1: You know? Not at all. But anyway, <laughs> it's,
0: it's, sure, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you're ever prepared to make this kind of decision. No. But, but these guys had a few seconds, and, and I think, understandably, most, a couple hundred, went back to work. And then 50, is kind of just coincidental that that, that round number, 50, mm-hmm. refused. And that's where the name Port Chicago 50 comes from. They started referring to them. That was the polite way that the, the press sometimes referred to them. And they were charged with mutiny. They were taken to a barge. They were put under arrest and, and told that they would go on trial. And so the first half of the book is everything that I've described. And then the second half... Right is what comes next when you go on trial for mutiny, knowing that the punishment, one of them, the most severe one and legal one, is execution. Not just execution, but by firing squads. I mean, that's just—that's how the law is written. And so they knew that that's what they were facing if they didn't back down.
1: Tough decisions to be made there.
0: (sighs) I know. Um, and, And it really races forward from there. They... They were given lawyers. The, I think the lawyers, especially the lead lawyer, who was a, a young white officer from Texas, who I think he's kind of one of the quiet heroes of the story. He really tried hard to give to represent them, but it was impossible. There was 50 of them. He couldn't even meet. Here these guys are fighting for their lives and he couldn't even meet with each one beforehand because there just wasn't enough time. So there wasn't exactly a, a proper representation. In this mm. trial. And then and the thing, and I talked about the transcript, that really drove these guys crazy was that they were, not, they were told explicitly by this panel of judges, they were all older, older naval officers, mm-hmm. to you, you are not allowed to talk about conditions at the base. Mm. We don't care about training or lack of. We, you were not allowed to talk about racism or anything that you felt was unfair in the Navy. That's not relevant here. All that's relevant is: Did you follow on such and such a day? Did you follow this order? Yes or no? And so the trial really didn't get into the issues no. behind this story. And then a few times in the transcript, it even jumps off the page in these typed, written, black and white mm-hmm. pages, which are over there are over a thousand of them, and it does not read like an episode of Law and Order. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it's really boring. So you have to go through and find them. But the guys went off script and said, I just want to say one more thing, you know, since I'm up here and and you can't stop me now. And they would enlighten us about some of the things that were going on on the base. But where uh, Thurgood Marshall comes into the story, and that's great as a storyteller and Mm. someone who wants to teach history, it's great to have that kind of name come into the story. Yeah, become a part of your story. (laughs) uh, But we didn't know who he was in 1940. Well, he was starting to make a name for himself Mm. as a civil rights lawyer in New York City and he would travel around the country doing incredibly daring things like representing clients in the, in the south and sleeping in his car because he couldn't stay wasn't allowed to stay in any hotels and, and he heard about this story and decided to come out he asked permission and the Navy granted him permission to sit in on the court martial, and he did for over a week and was convinced that that the men were not being represented, that the lawyer was doing the best he could, but they were not being given a fair trial, especially not given what was at stake. And and of course, the real issue in his in his mind, the real crime was the the segregation, the unfair treatment. That right. that should have been on trial because if, if it was that, none of this would have happened. Right. And so he started publicizing the trial and and getting involved and. and he couldn't, he couldn't change the outcome, which was quite literally predetermined. I mean, these guys were all convicted. Right. They, they, we know now that the, that the panel of judges spent 90 minutes deliberating 50, the fate of 50 men, and that included a lunch break. So there was no oh question about what they were going to do. They didn't give them death sentences. They did give them all very long prison sentences. Joe Small, who the Navy decided was the ringleader, got over fif- fifteen years of hard labor, and that was that. They were taken away, and Thurgood Marshall helped keep keep hope alive for them because he filed a an appeal, and he kept this, which which was not successful legally, but he kept the story alive. And what happened was, by the time the, the Navy, very, a couple of these these sorts of Incidents happened on other bases, too. Mm-hmm. And, and the Navy, to so their credit, I think, although they had the reputation at the time of being the most segregated and even racist, mm-hmm. prince, I th- they were actually the first to desegregate. And that, that's, that, we don't say that in textbooks. We always give Harry Truman credit, right? you know, <laughs> just this executive order. But the Navy, during the war, even said, let's just experiment and maybe they should have had to experiment at this point of human history but they felt they did so let's just put guys together on a boat and see what happens and it worked pretty well and they decided to completely desegregate and they and and they did before they were in the process of doing it before truman's executive order and and truman wouldn't have had the confidence to do it because he wouldn't have done it without the backing of those military leaders who said yeah it's it's going to work and so I think that's important, too, because this story, this Port Chicago story, led to that also, because
1: absolutely, um,
0: the Navy said, let's not have that happen again. And they never, you know, I'm giving them credit on the one hand, but they would never admit they were wrong. They, they did not want to revisit these convictions, although they did a very strange thing, I think. That's strange, well, telling, I should say, which is that mm. after the pressure mounted, mostly from Black newspapers, Thurgood Marshall, Eleanor Roosevelt, to her credit, got involved a bit, too. Good. The Navy said, all right, you know what? Maybe we, They never said, well, we overreacted. You could read between the lines. They thought they, they had overreacted. The war is over now. These guys are not dangerous. We're going to let them out. And then what they did, they not only just shortened the sentences, let everybody out of prison. They put them back on ships. They said, okay, now you serve out. You can finish up your, your time in the Navy. So do you think that they really believed these guys were dangerous mutineers? (laughs) 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 Of course not. (laughs) Integrated ships and let them serve out their time. And Joe did that and a lot of them did. And then they went home. And so the Navy clearly thought they were wrong. They clearly thought these guys were not dangerous criminals. They were given not full dishonorable discharge, but it was Discharged under honorable conditions, which is sort of this weird middle ground, and they didn't get mm-hmm. the GI and other benefits, and so they were just kind of cut loose, sent home, but they had this conviction hanging over them, and they all went their separate ways and tried to start their lives. And then the civil rights movement began, seemingly kind of separate from all of this. Although mm-hmm. there's a really, I found a really interesting story researching it. Uh, Jackie Robinson did something kind of Similar to what he, he later became famous for, while well, he was in the military in in World War II, and he uh, refused to go to the back of a bus, basically, and and, mm-hmm. and had a confrontation with a white bus driver over that, and was and was told he was going to be court-martialed. That was a story I, I didn't know about, but these kinds of things were happening, and so the the colonel, the, the 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 sparks of what we know of and think about in the 50s and 60s are really starting here and so i i still that's that's why i think it's such a such an important story to tell and because these guys lived their whole lives as mutineers one of them toward late in life applied for a presidential pardon and was Mm -hmm. granted by bill clinton and a few others were sort of solicited by civil rights groups said maybe you should do this too and a few of them including joe small said no i don't why should I ask for pardon? That means I'm guilty and I'm asking for forgiveness. That's not right. how I, I should be exonerated. And that would have to come from the Navy, um, who had, and they have very stubbornly refused to go back. They said, "It's ancient history. Let's move on. That's, their, their, that's what they say every time this community of people approaches them with another petition or something to, to re-examine these
1: convictions. Mm-hmm. Wow, I mean, and that's that's unfortunate, you know. I think in in many ways, I mean, you think about the families, uh, the descendants, you know, uh, you know, of these men. I mean, and like you said, this was one of the precursors, yeah. Um, you know, to the you know civil rights activities of the nineteen fifties, you know, and and sixties. So, do you think there's any chance even now, in today's world, or
0: yeah, just- I well, there is because because of robert allen and because of that community um still working on this story and there's you can look up online an organization called the friends of port chicago okay. and they're in the process of building a memorial and so keeping the story alive is history but also keeping this campaign mm-hmm. alive too i think it will happen i i actually do i maybe that's i don't know how long it will take i was more hopeful for about a lot of things a year ago than I am now, um, you know, especially as regards the president. And I thought that if, of course, we—I mean, I signed on. I didn't do anything. I, I, I did my little part to try and get this to Barack Obama's attention. And I think it's the kind of thing mm-hmm. he would have cared about if, if he, had, amongst a million things he had flowing over his desk. Um, sure. But again, sure. It, it wasn't something that he could sign sign you know you, you could pardon them but that's right. not what, what people are looking for um, and now it would have to be
1: done through the navy like it you would was have to
0: earlier. be done through the navy and now are we in the kind of environment where you couldn't even imagine that i mean maybe yeah i mean who knows maybe I, I think that the that they're doing the right thing and keeping the story going and mm-hmm. and not giving up hope of of making that happen eventually the exonerations but but for,
1: for now focusing on keeping the story alive, lot mm-hmm. alive right and making sure young people know about you know that, that these kind of things happen, yes. and that they were and they were not willing to just allow themselves to be put into dangerous situations without some level of, of protest.
0: Yeah, and I just like this is a common theme too for me. I just like stories for for and we're both you know we're talking about teenagers specifically mm-hmm. with these moral complexities in them. I like stories uh, of people who some say this guy was a villain or a traitor, and some people think they were a hero. And you have to think about it and decide for yourself. I mean, it's poss- impossible, probably, to put ourselves in, in that specific for Chicago mm-hmm. situation. But I think so many people who, were, who are the real heroes of American history broke the rules. You know, They didn't just mm-hmm. say, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be, so I'll just do it that way. And, and we're called traitors for doing it.
1: Right and, right, and
0: and sometimes the opposite is true. We're having this debate now about so-called heroes of the the Civil War, you know, and and that's mm-hmm. and and I think those. I actually think those are really really useful debates to have. It's the kind of mm-hmm. thing that, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes did get me interested in history when I was. In high school, because <laughs> I was not usually interested. But when a teacher would say, oh, what do you think about? It? Do you think this guy really was a hero or uh, should this person have a statue? That's the kind of thing that piqued my interest.
1: Right, right. And got you interested and involved. And and you're, you're right, Steve. This is one of those stories that you can really present to young people, you know, as educators. And, you know, how would you have responded in this situation? You know, you know, would you, both ways could have potentially led to death, you know? <laughs> Loving those bombs or, you know, potentially being a mutinous person and Absolutely. being executed.
0: Yeah, those are the thoughts that they said went through their minds.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's kind of one of those uh, choosing between a rock and a hard place or two bad decisions.
0: Yeah. Oh, there there was no good choice. No good choice. Some of the guys who went back felt guilty or bad, badly for having done that. I don't blame them at all. I don't know what I would have done. I mean, the temptation would have been to just say, all right, let me just get through this. Let me just survive, survive this war
1: and go back home. And uh-huh. so, yeah, go ahead. So, so what what was the view of and I know you said it was something in some black newspapers during that time. Yeah. Um, but it was overshadowed, of course, by, you know, other news and things that were going on because it was an act of war going on. But what was the kind of popular belief or, you know, a, opinion from what you, you've been able to you know, ascertain? From just the average, you know, black person during that time. Their view I towards think this. to the extent they, they could follow
0: this story, it was a big deal mm-hmm. to them. And that's the only reason I think that, the Navy, they were able, that the, there was enough pressure on the Navy right. to let these guys out. Because they they just, as soon as they put them in prison, it was, it was over as far as they were concerned. Mm-hmm. But it was this community who, who, of people who knew about the story and kept it alive. But it really, like you said, it was not a mainstream story. It was a few columns in Bay Area newspapers. The explosion was a mainstream story. The trial was not, and certainly not mm. the civil rights aspects of the trial,
1: right. um,
0: except in a little tiny bit in the Bay Area and then in African-American-owned newspapers. And, mm-hmm. and this is something um, kids don't know about, I don't think, but mm-hmm. in a communist newspaper, the only the only mm. person who's, the only paper that sent a reporter to the trial every day was a communist newspaper, and they're the, the you know the bad guys of history um, in the, uh, a lot of the ways we teach it and and sure. um, and in many real ways. But in this case, the, the yeah. communist party was they were amongst the only ones talking about civil rights in in the, in America in the 1940s, mm. and so I thought that, I thought that was really interesting because it was such a useful source. Mm hmm. Um, to have somebody who was there every day. But these were the, this was the only paper that thought it important enough to cover the trial. All
1: right, So it was a rather useful source during that time. Yeah. Wow. And looking at your book and the the earlier book by Mr. Mr. Allen. I mean, do you think there would be any interest or maybe you already have the answer to this, any interest in a, a movie or. Yeah. Some type of visual, you know, presentation, because you see a lot of these movies about some of these past African-American historical events. Has anyone approached you or do you know anything about?
0: Yes. It's, uh, yes. Briefly. I mean, I, I have been approached by a few people who say that, who say the same thing. Hey, I'd, let's make this into a movie. And I'm always I'm, I'm open minded about mm-hmm. it. You know, it's very easy to say. A lot of people will say this is a great this could make a great movie. And sometimes they'll go as far as optioning a story. Mm-hmm. But they don't really know, you know, You know, can't really get to the next point of actually making it. Right. But I have had a serious interest in this. And I, I, I of course, I think it would make a great movie. I, I actually think even more so than some of my other books because it's a, quite a self-contained story. It's not a big, mm-hmm. sprawling story. It's, uh, these guys show up at the base. They do the work. There's an explosion. There's a trial. You really have a tight timeline to it. Mm-hmm. And very very strong characters, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all uh, you know more drama than you could ever want. Oh yeah. So uh, and, and and it is like you say a very important and timely story that that hasn't been told. So I would love I would love for that to happen. It's funny that I started <laughs> out trying to make movies and found out that it really wasn't my strong suit. At least not directing. So right. Uh, it was not going to be me. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to be a consultant. I'm sure Robert would would be thrilled to. To help out, you know,
1: too, and then, so they'd have
0: plenty of people who'd want to help make it happen.
1: So your film career may not be over yet, Steve.
0: Wouldn't that, And that's how life works, isn't it? How you take these uh, <laughs> twists and turns and things you you never expected to come back into play. Do so. Yeah. So let's hope that 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 what you said is true.
1: Yes, I would. I would love to see this, you know, as you know, some type of documentary on PBS or. You know, like you said, as a, as a, a future film, I think this would be great, particularly if you look at the Thurgood Marshall aspect. You know, as You know, someone who who kind of comes into the to the story, you know, with all these other war movies that we've you know we've we've had and looking at some, as you mentioned, Steve, some of these civil rights issues and things that are coming back um, in yeah. the 21st century. Um, you know, I think this definitely relates a, a lot to that. Would you think? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's totally relevant. We're dealing with all the same issues and
0: then knowing where it, where it began. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think you would not have a hard time at all showing all the, all the ways this story is, is not just important to history, but really relevant to what we're still struggling with
1: as a country, still trying to live up to our ideals. And so the book is the Port Chicago 50, Disaster Mutiny and the fight for civil rights. And we're here on the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel, with the author of this book, Steve Schenken. And the book comes to us from Roaring Brook Press. Roaring Brook Press. And Steve comes to us from Saratoga Springs, New York. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, he, and he also recommended you go to uh, YouTube and check out his his movie from the 90s. It was called A More Perfect Union. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, leave, leave a comment. Because I, I, it's always just... Smart aleck kids who leave comments on it. I go to middle schools and, and tell them about it, and then they'll uh, they'll watch the trailer and make some joke about it. So yeah, <laughs> go go see All what right. you think. Check it out.
1: And again, I just want to mention that this book is um, you you wrote it you know initially for young adult audiences. So this could be a great book to share uh, with your children. And, you know, to have a discussion about um, you know what happened to the these men um, in 1944 during World War II. But as Steve also mentioned. Um, Many adults read his his books, and there are not as many works about this subject, you know, that are out there. Which is one of the reasons why we have him on the New Books Network uh, today to maybe introduce some of you all to this story, or for some of you who have may have heard about it, maybe give you some um, additional details. And you can um, learn more about Steve. You can go to our blog page on New Books Network, and uh, you'll see a nice bio, and you could find out some of his other books. He's an award winning writer. Um, you can see some his other books as well as uh, click through and purchase Port Chicago 50 from our partner uh, online bookseller. I'm sure Steve would have no problem with that as well. Right.
0: No, that would be fine.
1: Well, well Steve, thank you so much for for your time today. I don't want to hold you all day here. It was, you know, it's great talking with you and, you know, and hearing your story and. And wow, I mean, this is great work that you you know that, that you have done, and you know I also want to ask you what what else do you have in the pipeline, see, yeah. or any books or any projects that you want to share with our audience that you're working on? Sure. Well, thank you, James. This was really
0: I love talking about this story. This was a particularly thoughtful Absolutely. interview, so I appreciate it. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, this is the kind of these are the kind of stories I gravitate toward. These sort of American history stories. Mm-hmm. That, that don't make the mainstream his, history books all the time. So the, my most recent mm-hmm. one is called Undefeated, and it's the story of Jim Thorpe, and mm, particularly right. about his years, this great Native American athlete from Oklahoma, but particularly his years at a place called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which is in Carlisle, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And really it's a sports story, an against-all-odds story about the, the students at this this terrible school where they were really just sent there to... to, to should be stripped from their families and their culture. Uh, mm-hmm. But they put together a football team. And this was in the early days of, of American football. The um, sport was totally dominant. Look, look back at a, the record books of who won the national championships the first 30 years. No exaggeration. Mm-hmm. There's it's, it's, it's just four schools. And it's not Alabama and Ohio State. It's um, Ohio State. No, it's not, it's not those schools. It's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, <laughs> and Kent, University of Pennsylvania. That's it. They were wow. called the Big Four, and they totally dominated the uh, the world of college football. And so this is the the, the story of how the Carlisle team, this tiny team, when they started, they didn't even have a coach or a field to play on. They said, "We're not just going to be a team. We're going to we're going to break open the Big Four. We're going to become one of the best teams in the country." And it was it was basically impossible, but it's This is the book about how they did it, and Mm -hmm. and part of it was – well, there there are many aspects to it, but part of it was that a skinny kid named Jim Thorpe who hated school so much that that his dad sent him all the way to Pennsylvania so he couldn't run away and come home (laughs) to Oklahoma, this skinny kid turned out to be the best athlete in the world. Uh, Mm and No one knew that when he showed up at 15 years old in this horrible school. But he joined the track team and then eventually the football team. And just completely rewrote the record books. And this was the, really the first modern team. They were the first team to use the forward pass. Effectively, they mm-hmm. ran a puddle offense. They ran a very modern system of offense that just blew people away. Literally on the field, they just they would run up the score and then, and and did eventually play and beat the best teams in the country. So that was amazing. That's a great story. I mean, it's not a, it's not always a happy. The sports part of the stories are happy. The other parts. Less so, and Jim thorpe's story is has more ups and downs than a roller coaster, but that's that's my most recent book, and that's okay that's the one I'm happy to to talk about these days when i um when I get asked that question just because it's still even though he was really famous for quite mm-hmm. a long time to to again to high school kids now. Not, not really. Not so much. I mean, the name yeah. sort of out there, maybe sort of some kind of athlete, some kind of American Indian, but uh, he really, he's, he belongs in any conversation with Michael Jordan or whoever you think is yes. the best athlete in the world in American
1: history. Um, he's right there. Yes, he's definitely one of the best athletes that we know of to, to ever, Absolutely. you know, as a, as, as a complete athlete to, you know, to, to ever participate in sports in the United States. And there is a college football award called the Jim Thorpe Award that's named after him, so yep. some you know football fans may may know of him that way. Um, but yes, you know he's a you know outstanding athlete, and so the book is called Undefeated.
0: Undefeated, and it was kind of has a double meaning. It's this team was just then and now you really had to go undefeated or near nearly to win the national championship, you know, in mm-hmm. college football. So they were always trying, and they. And I'm talking about his years and his, his peak years at the school in 1911 and 1912. They played by far the hardest schedule in the country. And not only did they just just schedule every tough team they could, but they played all those games on the road because they didn't hmm. have a stadium. They just had a little practice field. Wow. So imagine that. Uh, we know today, I mean, how, how, what a strain it is to go on the road and play these these get up emotionally for a huge road game and then go on the train and do it again. And then again. And and so it was a quest to put it mildly, to try to run the table with this kind of schedule and go unbeaten. But it was, there's a bigger meaning to it too about uh, just what they, what they overcame in their own lives. The mm. team. And Jim was, this was not a one man team. These guys had an incredible collection of athletes on this football team. And they were, it was a diverse group They really came from all over the place and and I just would not accept the limitations that that they were given.
1: Wow. So, um, folk, if you like, you know, what you heard about Port Chicago 50, it sounds like you definitely also want to check out Bomb, which Steve mentioned earlier. But his most recent work, Undefeated, about the uh, Carlisle team that the uh, great Native American athlete uh, Jim Thorpe was a part of. You're right, Steve. You find some great stories to uh, <laughs> to, to to talk about. That one sounds like a movie too.
0: <laughs> that should be a movie, and that's that's a better known story. And I'm surprised it's not already. I just think the football action alone. I mean, football was wild. Like it was. You think it was more violent and actually yes. more dangerous than it, was than it is helmets. today. Leather helmets, uh, just mass plays where guys would just ramming into each other. Mm. blocking arms there were more head and neck injuries then far more than there are now even and and uh, but also the way these guys played the newspapers started calling they didn't know what they were doing so they had to come up with new names they called it whirlwind football because they would run plays so fast the defense was still trying to figure out what had happened on the play before and i think that'd be really fun on film really fun especially for Mm. football fans to see where it all came from so yeah, somebody should do that too, of course.
1: Right. So that's that's a nice hint from Steve and myself. Anyone yeah. listening out there who's in who's who's in Hollywood, definitely Port Chicago Fifty consider, but then also undefeated. We would love to see something on um, Jim Thorpe there. Wow. And so is there anything that you're that you're currently working on that you that you have, uh, or you? Uh,
0: yeah, I have some things not, in not the works, de- oh, but nothing okay. nothing
1: enough. Far enough along to oh to share describe <laughs> you know with
0: as much excitement as as, as I like. well that
1: was pretty exciting right there about I, yeah, <laughs> I get
0: into these stories you can tell I mean I, I you have yeah. to and, and I love yeah. this job you know it was yeah I,
1: this,
0: we, when I yeah, talk to yeah. kids they say so what do you, you do homework for a living because it sounds basically <laughs> my job is just like theirs I research I write I revise but I love it because I get to live with these stories.
1: And you're you're a, a a dedicated scholar and writer, and you do good work, Steve Shanken. So, you, you know, um, I'm I'm so glad we had the opportunity to have you on the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. And I'm hoping that uh, when you get far enough along, that you have those new projects that you want to share right. with us. That you that you'll come back and and uh, talk with us again.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Definitely.
1: Well, again, thank you so much, Steve, for spending some time with us today on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. So thank you so much, Steve, and we'll we'll turn you loose here and let you go. If you could (laughs) say goodbye to the audience for us.
0: Yes. Thank you, James. And thank you to the audience, too. Goodbye for now.
1: Absolutely. And we're definitely going to try to get Steve on the show again once he reveals one of those future projects that he's working on. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, we look forward to hearing from you and seeing you and um, all those good things, again, on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies Channel. Peace and love. Thank you so much to Steve Shankin for spending some time with us today talking about his book, The Port Chicago 50. If you like what we talked about in this interview, you definitely want to check out some of his other works like Bomb. And he mentioned undefeated his book about the carlisle school and the native american legend the great athlete jim thorpe so i hope you enjoyed the interview and definitely want to check out port chicago 50 it's a great book it's intended for young audiences but many adults read steve's work as well have a great day